Welcome market participants to another three things in credit. I'm Van Hesser, Chief Strategist at KBRA. Each week we bring you three things impacting credit markets that we think you should know about. I'm coming to you this week from the beach, Tar Beach that is, here at 50th and 3rd Avenue in hot, fragrant New York City. In our holiday weekend send-off, no surprise, we'll talk a bit about inflation, especially since Fed Chair Powell mentioned it 46 times in his eight-minute Jackson Hole speech. I don't know if I can match his pace of nearly six mentions a minute, but we'll give it a go. Before we jump into our three things, a quick post. As you know, KBRA is a leader in rating business development companies, private credit funds, middle market CLOs, and asset managers. With this unique visibility into these increasingly important markets, we are launching a webinar series on private credit. Our first event will examine BDC funding and liquidity. The date is Thursday, September 15th, 10 a.m. New York time. Register for free on our website. Again, Thursday, September 15th, 10 a.m. Hope to see you there. All right, without further ado, let's dig a bit deeper into this week's three things. So I hope it's not just me, but I admit to being surprised, if not shocked, at the narrative that emerged around Fed Chair Powell's speech at Jackson Hole. The idea that it was news that the Fed was singularly focused on taming inflation. Regular listeners to the podcast know our view that the Fed long ago changed its stance on managing inflation from a pragmatic one to an ideological one. That's not news. The hope that a pivot toward a more dovish tilt to the central bank's recent hawkishness is clearly misplaced. We have said for some time now that Powell's repeated invocation of Paul Volcker over the past year signaled the relevant historical event. The one to steer clear of is Volcker's double-dip recession in the late 1970s and early 1980s. Some would say Powell has had difficulty delivering the message citing previous FOMC meeting commentary that we had somehow approached neutral in terms of the policy rate. We didn't hear it that way, but many clearly did. That view, coupled with debatably strong developments in the labor market, formed the basis for what some apparently believe is a possible soft landing, something that triggered, the thinking goes, the recent rally in risk assets. Well, maybe last Friday's sell-off was nothing more than a buy-the-rumor-sell-the-news story. The fact that equity multiples on 2022 estimated earnings hit an above average 18 times just prior to last Friday seems out of step. Or that high-yield spreads had screeched into 408 basis points, several points, points, through where we would expect spreads to be heading into if we're not already in a recession. We would describe the recent rally in risk to be that of a classic bear market rally a zig in response to the zag we endured in the first half's rather severe sell-off, all part of the bumpy transition to a post-pandemic world. So here's how we would put all of this in context. One, the first half correction speed, which caught just about everyone by surprise, was unnerving to markets. Two, recession risk from over-tightening has increased due to two related factors the Fed's shift to inflation ideologue, coupled with the fact that it can only really influence part of the inflation equation, namely the demand side. Three, recession severity is contained by the limited scope of the problem. 
the financial system's relatively sound footing, and the balance sheet strength, for the most part, of consumers and businesses. And four, recession timing has been pushed out in 2022 by the Fed's slow-to-tighten stance. Its catch-up rate hikes, equivalent to monetary shock and awe, will take a while to bite, but bite it will as we head into next year, especially when we factor in any effects of QT. Now, in Q3, credit spreads have gyrated around 20-year average levels. That does not make sense to us unless we factor in scarcity value from much lower issuance and the fact that the index has more double Bs than has been the case in the past. Still, we believe wider spreads, especially in the lower-rated portion of the market, would better reflect the risk that is on the way. All right, on to our second thing, gas prices. Americans typically spend 25 to 5% of their budget on gas. That doesn't sound all that meaningful, but it is. Longer-term studies show that non-fuel spending declines when gas prices rise. Discretionary spending gets hit. Restaurants, entertainment, home improvements, vacations, all get less when gas prices rise. Now, in the first half, the average gas price in the U.S. rose from 361 a gallon to 547 by June 15th. During that time, stocks sold off 20% and high-yield spreads widened nearly two points. Since then, the price of gas has fallen back to 445, and sure enough, stocks bounced as much as 14% and spreads tightened back in 121 basis points, more than just a coincidence. Now, gas prices have an outsized effect on sentiment. University of Michigan consumer expectations fell to a 40-year low at mid-year peak gas, but then bounced materially in the August survey, beating every estimate in the Bloomberg consensus. The gains in sentiment, according to the survey's director, can be attributed to the recent deceleration in inflation. And no factor is more influential in inflation's deceleration than the price of gas. But falling gas prices are not always good. There is a point where an alternative narrative kicks in, where falling gas prices signal slowing global growth, and we believe we're seeing that now. Gasoline futures have fallen back to levels not seen since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Now, that's not the result of an uptick in supply. It's the result of investors coming to grips with a global slowdown in Europe, in China, and in the U.S. All right, on to our third thing, credit information in earnings calls. That's the title of a new academic piece I came across this week, co-authored by Dr. Harry Mameski, professor at Columbia Business School, where he serves as the director of the Program for Financial Studies. Harry is also co-founder of Quant Street Capital, and he has a deep well of experience in credit and risk markets. He is also a consultant to KBRA. Hello, Harry. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Van. Great to be here. So, Harry, you mentioned in your work that investors do not fully incorporate credit-relevant information on earnings conference calls into their credit assessments. That's a really startling claim from somebody who has, at least from my perspective, listened to thousands of conference calls over a long career. What have you and your colleagues found that is overlooked? Take us through your research. Sure. Thanks, Van. That's, that's a great, great question. So the paper is co-authored with my colleagues. Uh, I just want to briefly mention Yuan Shen and Hangi Wu. They're both fantastic co-authors. So we really premise this paper on the idea that 
you have credit PMs who sit there and they're managing a portfolio that has hundreds or thousands of corporate bonds and probably follows hundreds of individual issuers. And at the end of the day, earnings calls are pretty long. You know, they're like an hour to an hour and a half. And it's really hard for a PM, even with a team of analysts, to really go through all of the information that's being presented by companies, a lot of which, by the way, has nothing to do with credit, and really distill from that the relevant information for that firm's future capital structure choices, right? A lot of the traditional metrics that people use that they get you know, on their spreadsheets or their forecasting models are things like debt to EBITDA and uh, EBITDA to interest. And those kinds of measures are really all backward looking. They tell you what happened in the past. But what you'd really like to know is what are management teams thinking about the future, right? How are they going to shift around the company's capital structure next year? Like, are they going to buy back that? Are they going to buy back stock? You know, where is their mind at? And I think those kinds of pieces of information are really hard to get from any other source except directly from the management teams. And earnings calls are a great forum to do that. And what we found in, in our paper is that, you know, with advances in natural language processing and data availability and the latest new techniques, we can actually go into earnings calls and basically calibrate our model to understand what words and what phrases convey this kind of forward-looking credit information, and then assign a score to each call, which tells investors, basically, or researchers like ourselves, what was the tone of the call with regard to the credit status of that company? And you know, we found this measure to be quite useful. Wow, it's fascinating, Ari. So you know, I assume you're using big data techniques. What are some of the words or phrases that you've pulled out and tested, presumably, that you think are particularly relevant to credit investors? Yeah, so that's a really great, great question. So it's really interesting. We did our analysis separately for investor and grade and high yield names. And we found that there are some words and phrases that are systematically associated with wider credit spreads for IG and with tighter credit spreads for IG. And there's a different set of words and phrases for high yield. So let me just give you some examples. One of the most negative words that an investment grade management team can say during a conference call is the word investment grade. If you're a solidly investment-grade company, you don't need to tell people we're pretty comfortable with our investment-grade rating. At the point where you begin to discuss your investment-grade rating with investors, that's not great news. Another really bad word is the word covenant. Investment-grade investors do not want to hear the word covenant spoken on a conference call. If that is being discussed, then you know, there's something going on that's not great. On the other hand, good words, credit-positive words are words like growth or phrases like quarter increase followed by a number, even a word like worldwide. So that's for IG. For high yield, bad words are things like maturity, amend, net loss, liquidity. People really hate when people talk about liquidity in high yield conference calls. On the other hand, some good words are words like growth or, for example, share repurchase. And I think the thinking must be, look, if you're a high yield issuer, and you're going to be buying back shares, okay, you must be pretty comfortable with your credit profile. So that's interpreted by the market as a good sign. You know, there's lots of other ones. I mean, there's thousands of these words that have these meanings, but it's, it's really fascinating how the computer can sort of tease out this meaning from looking at, you know, thousands and thousands of these conference calls. Yeah, really, really interesting. So I assume, and take yourself back to, well, I guess you're still a portfolio manager. How do you incorporate this credit score, right? Pulling information out of these conference calls. How do you incorporate that into 
traditional measures that we sit and calculate, fundamental factors as well as market signals. How do the how does this sit alongside, you know, more traditional ways that we assess credit? So I, I think there is an academic answer here and a practical answer. From the academic point of view, when we tested the forecasting power of our credit score measure, we basically ran a horse race of this measure against like 15 or 20 other forecasting variables that have been proposed in the academic literature over the last five to 10 years as forecasters of credit returns. One thing I should note, by the way, is a lot of what happened in equity investing, which is factor investing, quant strategies, are starting to happen in credit as well. And so there's a lot of interest in the academic world and in you know, the practitioner world for figuring out how to apply quantitative tools to credit. So we compared our measure against many, many other measures, and we find that there is unique information content in our measure that's not spanned by those measures. We did a lot of analysis of what exactly our measure forecasts. And typically, when the, the way we look at it is we take the current CDS spread of a company, we subtract from it our model implied CDS spread given the text of the earnings call, and then we check you know, how much mean reversion is there in that measure. And what we find, depending on how you look at it, is about 5 to 10% of the deviation of the actual spread from our model implied spread retraces itself over the next year. Now, it doesn't sound like a lot. However, you know, if you do this at a portfolio level, and a lot of 5 to 10% can add up you know, to Im- improving returns. So from a practitioner point of view, look, you're going to look at all the same stuff you usually look at, like ratings, profitability of firms, your various debt measures, all of that has to be there. In addition, you know, we would argue you should be running an algorithm that processes the information content of earnings calls, and then look at the deviation of where a credit is trading relative to what the implied credit spread is from the earnings call text. And then you have to do some thinking. You have to say, okay, does it make sense to me? Obviously, the model is not infallible. And if it makes sense that the model is picking up something that the market may not, then you know it's an opportunity to skew your portfolio in that direction. So I, I very much believe credit investing is this hybrid between what the machine can tell you and just human intuition because it's complex and you know the machine doesn't know everything. That's for sure. Yeah, that, that brings up a good question, Harry. So, you know, as a as a credit analyst, I'm I want to be naturally a bit skeptical of models. You know, where or in what instances have you found that your work or or credit score might not give you, you know, some relevant information might might give you the wrong signal? Sure. Uh, so, I, I give you two two examples. You know, w- one it identified at one point for New York Times that its model implied credit spread was much higher than where the market was trading. And we, we, it was such a big outlier that we actually took a look at that to try to understand what's going on. And what we found at the time is that even though New York Times had CDS trading on it, you know, in the anticipation of future deliverables, there were actually no bounds outstanding at the time. So there was, there was no credit out there to actually trade, even though the, there was a CDS. So, you know, that's one that the model got wrong. You know, another one that the model can easily get wrong is when huge events happen that the model hasn't trained itself to understand. For example, when COVID hit, right, you had this unprecedented shock to corporate balance sheets. Companies began to issue a lot of debt really in, in a precautionary way to hoard cash. Our model would not have understood anything that's going on, right, because none of the language that was being used was in our model's sort of memory banks because it had never seen it before. It may have interpreted, you know, debt issuance as maybe negative. In fact, it wasn't during COVID. So I think it, it works okay in the steady state when big unusual events happen. 
the model has no idea what's going on. But that's why you need humans. Uh, you know, I would never advocate the credit invest. It can be done entirely in a model-based way. You need people who understand what's going on and they use the model as a tool. It's like, you know, the chess player who uses a computer to augment decisions as opposed to just letting the computer do everything on its own. I got it. Well, I, I think it's absolutely fascinating work, Harry. Where can our listeners find out more? Where can they find the paper? Sure. So there's my website. You can just go search for my name. It'll take you to my website at, at Columbia or my personal website, and you can download the paper from there. There's a link to the paper. Terrific. We'll leave it at that. Thank you very much, Harry, for, for sharing those insights with us. Thanks a lot, Finn. So there you have it. Three things in credit. One, Q4 outlook. History tells us to expect volatility expect risk assets to better reflect the challenging environment ahead. Two, price of gas. How it affects investor sentiment is a mixed bag. Today, it's signaling a global slowdown. And three, earnings conference calls. An important new academic work says credit investors don't pay close enough attention to credit signals embedded in those calls. It is worth seeking out. As always, thanks for joining us. Don't forget to check in on KBRA.com for our latest research and ratings reports. You can find Dr. Mameski's research by pulling up his website at Columbia. Just search for Harry Mameski, last name spelled M-A-M-A-Y-S-K-Y. Enjoy the long holiday weekend, and we'll see you next week.